So we're going to jump into our passage. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at a few verses today. I'll read verse 1, then we'll go into verse 2. Verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now whatever your translation says, it might be overseer, it might be elder, it might be bishop, we're talking about the same role here. just want to be clear about that. Okay. An elder is one who is spiritually mature. Spiritually mature. Okay. Let's go to verse 2. An overseer, elder, bishop, they're all synonymous, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. So we're going to take apart each of these descriptors here. The first is above reproach. We're going to define this as blameless. This is going to determine the, all of these descriptions today as a life of blamelessness. It's an absolute necessity that this man of God, this elder, be blameless. And he is in a present state of blamelessness. It doesn't mean he never committed a sin his whole life. It doesn't mean there wasn't something in the past that was wrong. What it means is he is presently, currently blameless. Before we were Christians, we lived in sin. That's all we could do. A sinner sins. So these descriptors here are not of a past, but of a current, a present. The word translated means not able to be held. If you guys remember, about four weeks ago, there were two uh, inmates that escaped, escaped from a prison in upstate New York. And there were teams of people trying to lay hands on these two men. Well, this descriptor right here, a man of God, you cannot put a hand on him. He is above accusation. He's not marred by some sin, a habit, an attitude, an incident. It doesn't mean there won't be times when he fails. But it's not something in his life to which everyone can point to. He is not to have anything in his life which when people start following him, it would lead those people following him into sin. This goes back to what Paul said, 1 Corinthians. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Basically, whatever you see me doing, you do it too. Because you've got to trust that I'm doing what, I'm, I'm following God well. Basically, if I'm pursuing blamelessness, you will see it. And then you will pursue blamelessness because I believe it's contagious. So blamelessness is the overarching concept today that flows from these verses. So let's look at some of these descriptors of what it means to be blameless. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Basically, a one-woman man. Now this is not a phrase related to whether he's married or not. It's not a phrase whether related, related to whether he's been married before. It's not concerning status, it's concerning character. This is not a matter of circumstance. It's a matter of his virtue. The issue here is the man's moral and sexual purity. He begins to discuss blamelessness here in verse 2 by a statement about his moral sexual behavior. And I believe it's first because this is where men are most prone to fail. This means that a man loves only one woman, desires one woman, thinks of one woman, whose heart is for one woman, and that woman is the wife that God has given to him. 
He's sexually pure in thought, sexually pure in conduct. Now some may say this means that a single person can never leave the church. Well, that's not true. Because the man writing this letter, the Apostle Paul, was never married. So that would have excluded him from being an elder. A one-woman man, very clearly, is one completely devoted to his wife in affection and sexual purity in both thought and deed. A one-woman man is one completely devoted to his wife in affection and sexual purity in both thought and deed. So a man of God is to be a one-woman man. Continue on. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded. When we first hear the word sober, we probably relate it to alcohol. Now, being sober or not being intoxicated with alcohol, the Bible speaks very clearly against that. Ephesians 5, 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Alcohol has the potential for great harm, but we're not just dealing with sobriety as it relates to alcohol. We're talking a spiritually sober mind, a mind that is alert, watchful, clear-headed, a mind that is steadfast, self-controlled, morally decisive. Any excess can really apply here. There's so many things in our lives which we can have a lot of excess in. But why should we be sober-minded? 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. So why should we be sober-minded? So that we don't forget the grace by which we have been saved. Church, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But when we become drunk, or how this, how this text describes it, we forget what we're saved by. We start attributing other things to our salvation. And it says to not forget, it says to be sober-minded, so you don't forget that there is a future grace coming. A grace that is coming when Jesus returns back and brings Christians to his eternal home in his presence. But we get drunk on life. We start thinking that this is our home. 1 John 2, 16 and 17. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We get drunk on life. We start thinking, we start getting drunk on these things. The flesh, the eyes, possessions. The battle against sin starts in the mind. And it continues in our actions, but it starts in our mind. We start living for our empire. We start living for our kingdom. But when we are sober-minded, we're clear, we're watchful, we're clear-headed, we live for God's empire, God's will, God's kingdom. Who is your enemy in the fight for your sober-mindedness? 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Who is your enemy in the fight for sober-mindedness? The devil and his army. They are always active, church, looking for opportunities to overwhelm the man of God with temptation, persecution, and discouragement. 
Satan would do whatever he can to drag the men of God out of fellowship with Christ and out of service to his church. In a world full of excess, for a man to be clear-headed, to stay away from the excesses of this world, pushes us to maintain a balance, an alertness, a clear-minded, watchful clear-mindedness. And this is an everyday battle. A man who is clear-minded, sober-minded, would say this, that his passions are not those of the senses. I'm sorry, his pleasures are not those of the senses. His pleasures are those of the soul. A man of God is to be sober-minded. Continue in verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled. I think in this verse, self-control comes from sober-mindedness. I think one is breeded from the other. When your mind is set on the things of God, you're in control of your pleasures, you're in control of your passions. If you're sober-minded with no excess, then you're well-disciplined. You know how to order your priorities. You kind of have your ducks in a row because your mind is set on the things of God. Continuing in verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Respectable. How are you spoken of? In your seat, think about this question. If you were to ask someone in your family, at work, in our church, and an acquaintance, do you feel respected by me? What would they say? Respect breeds respect. Respect breeds respect. Romans 12, verse 10 has a great verse about what it means to show respect. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Wouldn't this be a great descriptor of our church that we're always trying to outdo one another with respect? Always trying to outdo do one another with honor. What would, the, what would your family member, person at work, someone in our church, an acquaintance, what would they say if you were to ask them, do you feel respected by me? Why or why not? An overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Hospitable comes from a Greek word. This is probably going to be the most intellectual thing I say today. The word is philoxenos. Second part of that word, senos, means stranger. First word, phileo, comes from the word love. So it literally means to love strangers. First Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Praise God. <laughs> Hebrews 13, 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So, hospitality, what does that word mean? I'm afraid in our society, maybe even our church, we've associated hospitality with hosting. Well, so-and-so has the gift of hosting. So-and-so has the gift of cooking. That means they're great, they're very hospitable. Now, while I do think those are great attributes, and I can test your food at any time, cook at any time, that's not just what this word means. This is not a word about just having your friends over. Jesus spoke on that. He said, if you're loving the people who love you, what reward is that? He said, if you're going to have a feast, don't invite the people you know are going to come. Go out in the street and invite the strangers. 
You see, the mark of spiritual leadership here is not somebody who entertains his friends. Everybody does that. That's not a mark of anything. Everybody has their friends over. Everybody takes their friends out. Everybody shows kindness to their friends. This is talking about the people who aren't your friends, loving strangers, and loving your enemies. This is not a place for isolation either. Because when we're called to love strangers, it's easy to kind of step back from that. Like, oh, I can let somebody else do that. But that person's life, their home, they're wide open, fully visible, so that people can come in and see the character of that person's life. I mean, if I want to know the most about you, I just come to your house and watch you for a few days. The role of being an elder here and a man of God in this passage is not a place where you ascend beyond the people and you become untouchable like that, that, that suit and that uh, board meeting. We're not corporate executives. We're not CEOs. We're not adversaries. We're not advisors. I'm always reminded when I think about that why should we love strangers? Because at one time, I was a stranger. I'm not Jewish. I'm a Gentile. So according to the Old Testament covenant, I'm outside the promises of God. I don't deserve anything, any of God's pleasure, His goodness, His mercy. Ephesians 2, it says, I was an alien. At, once, at one point, I was an alien to, to God. But God invited me into His family. He adopted me, and He made me an heir, like equal so if I've been welcomed into a family of God as an alien, as a stranger, how much more will I, in turn, invite those who are strangers in my life into my family? Loving strangers is not just a matter of opening your home. It's a matter of opening your life. Do you make yourself accessible, available? We talked in our uh, staff meeting one week about interruptions. Letting ourselves, uh, building in time into our schedules to be interrupted for people. Like, are we building that time in so that we can be interrupted to serve people in a way in which we didn't plan? Opening your heart, opening your life to people who don't know you and whom you don't know can sometimes be the best way for evangelism. A saying is, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. When you're opening your home to people, opening your life to people, People will tend to want to hear what you have to say. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Rich taught on that last week. Now verse 3. Not a drunkard. Now obviously drunkenness would not, would, uh, is a sin. We saw that in Ephesians 5. So obviously this would disqualify a person from being an elder. So, maybe this means something else. And what I think it means here is reputation. What is your reputation? What does your reputation say about your faith? We kind of, we have people in our, in our society, and they're known for doing things. If, if you were to ask someone, what do you think my reputation is? What would someone say? I'm asking, asking you to ask a lot of questions of yourself because I kind of want you to take an inventory. Like, where am I at with the people in my life? So what does your reputation say about your faith? Not a drunkard. Verse 3, not violent but gentle. 
Let's read that again. Not violent, but gentle. I think this is wonderful. A man of God does not handle things with fists or with instruments of violence. He's not a giver of blows. He doesn't punch people when they get upset, physically or verbally. This leadership, a man of God, demands a man who can deal with things with a cool, a gentleness, a man who doesn't fight. He does not resort to violence. And we see in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus says, if you, it's not just if you uh, murder someone with your hands, you can murder someone with your words. So thinking a thought is just as equally bad as actually doing it. A man of God's tongue is not a lashing tongue, which reaches out in strife. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So how can you ask yourself if you have a violent tongue or a gentle tongue? Here's the answer. Is what I'm about to say going to tear down or build up? That's the only two answers. It's very black and white. Is it going to tear someone down or build someone up? And Paul says here, only say things that give grace to those who hear as it builds up and fits the occasion. Not violent, but gentle. A gentle tongue. Continuing in verse 3. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And how, how I described this was patient and forgiving, not revenge seekers. Patient and forgiving. You're not headhunting. You don't keep a Rolodex of all the things that people have done against you over time. Aristotle said, this has the idea of a person who easily pardons human failure. It's a beautiful virtue. And a person who easily pardons human failure. 2 Timothy 2.24 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Patience. You remember good, not evil. Patience is the ease of, pardon, of pardoning human failure. Focusing on the good that those who have done, rather than the evil. And that's the kind of person... A man of God that God wants. Not a person who keeps grudges. Oh, I can't wait to use that one against them. They seek peace. They seek forgiveness. Continuing in verse 3. Not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Very clear. What a corruption it is, church, for men of God in the ministry, elders, to be lovers of money. You see people as getting too money. Or how can this person make me rich? Everyone is simply an avenue for you to get rich. That's such a temptation. But the man of God does not have any earthbound desires. He's not greedy. He's not stingy. He's not indulgent. A person who loves money believes that he is the owner of that money. But a man of God believes that God is the owner of the money, and the man is just the manager. And if you're a manager, you can't get attached to the possessions because they aren't yours. So you freely give to those, and you trust that the owner will give you more. 
a lover of money. A man of God does not love money, but he loves blessing people with it. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Verses 4 and 5, we touched on in our first week of fatherhood. So we'll go to verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He should not be newly planted. Don't, we will not put a man in spiritual oversight as an elder of this church who is a new convert or recently baptized. That's very basic and very important. Why? Verse 6, he may be puffed up with conceit. The issue here is that you, if you lift up a new convert and give him a position with other mature godly men, he's going to have to battle with pride. It doesn't mean he's not qualified. He could fit the descriptors of verse 2 and 3 very well. But if he's a new Christian, if he's relatively new in the faith, the tendency is for him to feel proud about having been elevated to that level of leadership occupied by older, more mature, godly men who have been in the church for many years. Now this doesn't tell us that the, that the issue here is not that an elder has to be so long a Christian or an elder has to be so old in terms of age. Remember, the word elder means spiritual maturity, experienced. It's not talking about age, particularly, physical, although there is a certain amount of years implied in spiritual maturity. But an elder in the church is one who is spiritually mature. I want you to understand that those who have been pointed to eldership, the thing you want to protect them against is pride. It isn't a question of how long they've been a Christian. It's a question of how will lifting them up to this position affect them. In some situations, there won't be the place for pride. In others, there will. And that's what we're guarding against. It's difficult to stand on a pedestal and wash the feet of those below you. So for, so for elders, we cannot be uh, put into a position early in our faith where we feel like we're puffed up and conceited. They should be mature. Now, mature, again, is kind of relative. They should be an elder in the sense of spiritually. They should be an elder in the sense of their spiritual age. Their spiritual age should be older. Now, what does that mean for the congregation? We have a very young congregation here. But it means that the elders must be more spiritually mature than the congregation and in being lifted up, that has to be certain that they would not be prone to being proud. So like we said before, these descriptors are for everyone, but the elders must be higher so that the people know what to attain to. Why should we not be puffed up and proud? Verse 7 is very scary. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. I'm sorry, verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I thought it might say, if someone is puffed up with pride, he might lose effectiveness. Or if he's puffed up in pride, he might fail to fulfill his task. Or if he's puffed up in pride, he might fall into sin. This is very serious. It says that being puffed up by pride, he falls into the condemnation of the devil. 
So for this church, as we establish elders going forward, we're going to give a lot of, a lot of thought and discernment to verse 6 because we're talking about the spiritual health of that future elder. We never want to, to put someone in a place where they're going to possibly be condemned by the devil. Verse 7. Moreover, he must be thought of by outsiders, well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Reputation amongst non-Christians. What do non-Christians have to say about you? A man of God must have a good reputation in the community among those who are non-Christians. They may disagree with what we say. They may disagree with our truth. But they have nothing to grab a hold of. Back to that accusation. They can't lay anything on us. And how can we make a spiritual impact if the people around us who are non-Christians don't respect us? So it goes back to being respectable. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Looking at this description, this is very overwhelming. You sort of size yourself up as this, as hopefully you guys have been doing. Like, man, I'm not there. Who is? Who's capable of this? And while the three of us have been installed as elders, we say we're not capable of this. In our flesh, we are not capable. So my, my, uh, my request for the church is that you would pray for us. Pray for us because we will face, like I said, if the devil's main scheme is to take down the, these three people, he can take down the entire church. So for the three of us, my prayer is that God will use us that God will, and God will raise up more men like this in the days ahead that the three of us will set a standard of living, set an example, set a, a model to follow so that as the church follows, that as we go forward, we'll see this church strengthened. We'll see the salvation of souls. We'll see God be praised. For rich seed of myself... In our flesh, we are very unqualified. But we're following a Lord, following Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And if we're in union with Him, if we're in a current state of blamelessness, and all these descriptors follow, then you, then you can trust what we say, that when we, you can imitate us as we imitate Christ. You can look at our lives and say, there's nothing to grab a hold of. I can follow this person wherever they go. That is our prayer for us as elders. So we ask that you will pray for us. Pray for us as we fight the temptations, the snares of the devil. Because he can take down the leadership in a church. He can take down the entire church. We saw in verse 6 that a per person who is puffed up will fall into the condemnation of the devil. Church, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against spiritual warrior. 
But we have a Savior, we have the Word of God, we have the Spirit as our weapons. And we have this church as a weapon to pray for us as leaders, as future elders, as men of God to be developed. That we will see these qualifications for an elder, for a bishop, for an overseer, for a man of God, and they will chase after them. So this church can be strengthened, so that people can come to faith, and that Jesus may be praised and glorified. Let me pray.